We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. There they are, the most famous words from arguably Winston Churchill's most famous speech, the Dunkirk speech, delivered in the House of Commons on the 4th of June, 1940, known often as just the Beaches speech or fight on the beaches. And Winston Churchill is going to be the subject of this episode. The feature speech won't be the Dunkirk speech. Richard Cohen, our special guest, has decided to focus on Churchill's speech to Congress on the 26th of December 1941, and that's a magnificent speech as well. But I did want to play that little snippet. I just love the end of the Dunkirk speech. The fight stuff is the most famous, but but for me, the line that always grabs me is the new world coming to the rescue of the old. To fight on the beaches... We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham, and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory. I understand sacrifice. Speak over. I may not get there with you. And we as a people will get to the promised land. Tony Wilson. Hello and welcome to a post-election edition of the Speakola podcast, that election in Australia, for those internationals not following the fine print. There's been a change of government here. The Conservatives out. Labor, Greens, Teal Independents in. Bit of a changing of the guard. I am a little bit heart-on-sleeve Labor. My role was to write some speeches for a Labor MP. Peter Khalil in Wills, been helping him out these last couple of years, so very excited that he did well in his electorate and very excited for the change of government as well. Today, as I mentioned, it's going to be a political podcast, but a very different political time. We had to do a Winston Churchill episode at some point. It is compulsory, if you love speeches, to at least take an interest in one of the great orators. And the feature speech chosen by our Churchillian scholar and fan is the speech to the joint sitting of Congress on Boxing Day, 1941. It was dark times for the Allies. Pearl Harbor had occurred just three weeks previously, and America was rattled. But finally, Churchill had his wish, and the Americans were in the war. Churchill's trip to the United States was a significant 
diplomatic play. He needed troops to be dedicated to the European theatre and not just to the Pacific. And he was arguing the case for America making Hitler enemy number one. It's not just an important historical speech. It's also a fine example, as so many of Churchill's speeches are, of just beautiful oratory, the writing, the delivery. And we've got a great guest on to talk about all that. He is Richard Cohen. And he runs a Facebook group called Winston Churchill. It's got over 21,500 members. I'm one of them. And I've enjoyed Richard's work. I've even put a speech of Richard's up on Speakola. And Richard was helping me get Andrew Roberts, the preeminent Churchill biographer of the last 50 years on the podcast. And then Andrew Roberts said, I don't really want to do podcasts. He said it in a much more proper accent than that. And Richard said, look, I can do it if you want. I live and breathe Churchill every day and I proofread Andrew Roberts's book. Can I help you out? And I said, yes. And so Richard Cohen, it is. I'll finish this introduction by saying a big thank you to the podcast reader. It's no longer our sponsor. We no longer have a sponsor, but I have to mention it because on the cover of the podcast reader this month is Winston Churchill and the interviewee is Andrew Roberts the preeminent biographer of the last 50 years. So Andrew Roberts will do someone else's podcast, which has been transcribed for the podcast reader, but he won't do Speakola. But it doesn't matter because we've got an amazing guest. It does mean that we no longer have a sponsor. And if you want to support us, we're a listener-supported show. No ads. It's just, can you get on board at patreon.com forward slash Speakola or speakola.com forward slash donate. Well, since I began this podcast, I've wanted to do an episode on Winston Churchill. And the man who's going to guide me through this one is the man who created the Winston Churchill Facebook group that I belong to. It's got 21 and a half members. It's full of enthusiasts, and there's none more enthusiastic than Mr. Richard Cohen. Thanks for joining us, Richard. You're very welcome. And, uh, well, it's a good morning for me and a good afternoon for you. So tell me, Winston Churchill, you obviously dedicate a lot of your life to preserving his memory and having conversations with Churchillians across the globe. How did you Mm -hmm. discover him? How did you fall in love with him, if you like? Well, it goes back a very long way, but uh, I suppose I was born near to Harrow, where Winston Churchill attended school. He went to the boarding school called Harrow, and I went to the sister school, which was called John Lyon, which was actually the, the name of the founder of Harrow School. And we used to hold our speech days annually at the Harrow School speech room, which is totally infused with the spirit of Winston Churchill. But I think prior to that, it was watching the funeral in January 1965, when I would have been 10 years old, made a profound uh, impression upon me. Um, And geographically, I seem to have followed the footsteps of Winston Churchill ever since, because I went to Manchester University, where he was a Liberal MP for many years. And then subsequently, I live in his constituency on the borders of London and Essex. So I do feel that I've imbibed a, a lot of uh, Churchillian influences over the years. 
And you said you spoke at the Harrow School where he was so famous. And in fact, he gave one of the most famous speeches ever at Harrow, the don't give up, never give up speech. Mm. What was your speech at Harrow? Did you ever, did you go in the public speaking competitions there? Well, uh, no, it was prize giving. So I would have just received an award, but I did belong to the school debating group. I suppose one thing I I share in common with Winston Churchill is that I did not actually study history at university, although my headmaster wanted me to, but my parents preferred me to pursue a legal career. But even within those parameters, I managed to major in legal history as being one of one of the heads of my degree. I, I think history and law have a lot in common anyway. So I don't feel ill-equipped to deal with Winston Churchill. And I, I, my son lives in Cambridge, so I've been to the Churchill College in Cambridge. And uh, thanks to the proprietor there, uh, Alan Packwood, uh, I've been able to see some of Churchillian archives in, their, in the original form, which is always very thrilling. Well, I did seek to get Andrew Roberts on the podcast, and he's a man you know well, and, and you tried really hard to get him on. Um, he's written, yes. the, I guess, the most famous recent biography of Churchill. And I heard Andrew Roberts say that Churchill delivered more than five million words spoken. And I've asked you to choose a feature speech out of all of those five million. Which one did you choose, Richard? Well, I've, I've chosen his address to Congress because I think perhaps it's slightly less well known to the listening public uh, than the main speeches for which is so well known, uh, which of course is uh, Blood, Sweat and Tears, which was the, the speech he made when he first became Premier in May 1940, and also the Dunkirk speech, which is often known as We Shall Fight Them on the Beaches speech. So I thought I'd focus on something a little different. Um, I, th- I also believe that it speaks to us directly today uh, about the events that are going on in Ukraine. So that's the one, that's the speech that I've alighted upon. Well, it is, it's an amazing speech and we will play it at the end of the episode. It was delivered on the 26th or was it the 24th of December 1941? Yep, it was on what the Brits for any, at any rate called Boxing Day, December the 26th, 1941. So just about three weeks after Pearl Harbour. Uh, interestingly, Winston Churchill, being Winston Churchill, would like to have gone to see President Roosevelt earlier than when he did. But there was a slight problem because it, Churchill's deputy, as it were, Anthony Eden, the foreign minister, was in Moscow at the time. And it was felt it would be wrong for both of them to be out of the country at the same time. But of course, there was another deputy prime minister, Clement Attlee, who was, in fact, very efficient uh, in dealing with affairs when Winston Churchill was abroad. And it was decided that in the end, it would be okay for Churchill to go, perhaps a little later than he wanted. He was always accused of being impetuous. But on the other hand, he'd taken, you know, the the build-up to getting America on side had gone on since 1939 to December 1941. So, you know, that's uh, more than two years that, that, that Churchill had been waiting for this moment to occur. It's, it's sometimes called a, a romancing, a, a sort of a, he was trying to woo Roosevelt, wasn't he, to, to encourage him to come into the war. And even those beautiful last words of fight on the beaches, I mean, that's just a direct appeal to Roosevelt to please help the United Kingdom out. 
Oh, there'd been several, several, several attempts to do that. And um, two major um, successes in that regard were, of course, Lend-Lease, uh, which Winston Churchill called the, the least sordid act of a legislature. And the, the general persuading of the American population that their interests and those of, of Great Britain uh, were at one. Uh, I mean, after Pearl Harbor, the, the America firsters, a lot of them believed that they should just focus their attention upon Japan. And had Germany not declared war against the US so a week after Pearl Harbor, Nazi Germany might not have been America's main focus. In fact, even after the declaration, there were still some who believed that the focus should have been on Japan. So one of the reasons when Churchill went to America was to consolidate his desire that it should be Nazi Germany first and then Japan that should be the, the, the main thrust of the war. And I think in, in this, he succeeded in consolidating that position. Interestingly, President Roosevelt would not have been present at the speech for reasons of protocol, but of course he, he would have heard about it. But yes, you're quite right. I mean, this this wooing, this schmoozing had been going on for a long time. There's a very good documentary about Alexander Calder, uh, how the British used uh, Hollywood to get the message over. Uh, you had the broadcast from Ed Morrow to the Americans about how the British were uh, battling on through the Blitz. You know, this caused a lot of Americans to identify with the cause, and gradually they came they came over. And uh, this is exactly what Churchill knew that Britain, its empire and Commonwealth, could keep the Germans at bay. Um, but there were, of course, two events in 1941 which, for Churchill, turned the tide of war. The first being Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of the Soviet Union. And the second was the declaration of war by Germany upon America. And he says in this speech to Congress that although you can't predict when the war is going to end, it could be, you know, you've got to get through 1942, 1943, 1944. He, the message was this, this is going to be a long and drawn out war, but ultimately we will prevail. It was, it was a difficult time for him. I've heard podcasts and read biographies that 1941 and then even 1942, the first half of 1942 was very difficult for the Allies. And he had real health issues. Didn't he have a real health scare directly after this speech? Yes. Interestingly, the, the next day um, after the speech, he was due to travel to Canada. And I'm not quite sure why, because it December... The day after Christmas, I would imagine, is normally pretty cold in Washington. But he was fiddling around with his window on the evening after the delivery of his speech to Congress. And uh, he suffered a mild heart attack. He'd had, throughout the war, he'd suffered quite a few mild heart attacks, um, minor strokes, uh, bouts of pneumonia. But this was actually nothing new Churchill. He'd, uh, his health had been somewhat checkered throughout his life, partly because of his diet, I suppose, and uh, partly because of the strain that he was operating under. But nevertheless, he, he, his powers of recovery were phenomenal. And he, he did get the train up to Ottawa, and he delivered that speech to the Canadian Parliament 
in which he spoke about General Wagon having said that the British neck would be wrung within three weeks after the invasion, successful invasion of France. And um, Churchill said to the Parliament, some chicken, some neck. So even though he'd suffered this health reversal, uh, he'd, he'd managed to retain the Churchillian spirit in full for, for, the, for the address to the Canadian Parliament. I thought we might chat about how he became such a great speaker. Um, he was obviously a very well-educated man. Um, he went to Harrow. I think he sometimes joked about his own poor performance there, but Andrew Roberts says he, he was a reasonable student there and, and then a, a good scholar at university as well. But, you know, he becomes a speaker of the 20th century. He really soars the heights. How did he discover yes. this knack? How did he become such a great speaker? Well, I think the answer to that is his father, Randolph Churchill, who became Chancellor of the Exchequer in late Victorian Britain, and he should have become Prime Minister, but unfortunately his career was stopped short by his somewhat uh, quick-fired resignation over the naval estimates and the failure of Lord Salisbury to persuade him to retain the position, Lord Salisbury. Their relationship was uh, a, quite a sparky one, and I suppose Lord Salisbury regarded Randolph Churchill as a rival. But certainly Randolph Churchill was the most dazzling speaker in the House of Commons. Uh, Winston admired him tremendously, and uh, he wrote a two-volume biography of his father, which was very well received. His father died prematurely at the age of only 45, ironically, on the same day in January that Winston Churchill himself died in 1965. So it was from his father that he learned some of the arts of rhetoric. And it was also because of his failure to do well at Latin and Greek at school, which meant that uh, he the emphasis was on the English language. And he always spoke very highly of his English teacher at school, who, who taught Churchill how to construct a sentence and how to use the, 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 the best words within that sentence. And Winston Churchill was only 23 when he wrote a, an article which was never actually formally published called The Scaffolding of Rhetoric, in which he lays out the ways in which a speech should be constructed. What are some of the basic rules he puts down there? Is it, does, he, does he talk just about the, the commonly known rhetorical devices from ancient Greek? Or? He never actually um, speaks of the devices such as alliteration, antithesis and assonance and so on. He doesn't actually use those Greek words to describe the ways in which a speech should be put together. He, he kind of gives it in English. I ought just to interpose here before I extract some of the important points of the scaffolding of rhetoric is that um, once his father Randolph had died, um, he was taken under the wing of one of his mother's many suitors, uh, an American senator called Burke Cochrane, who was an Irish-born senator and who was held to be the preeminent rhetorician, the preeminent orator of the times. He was advisor to Republican and Democratic presidents. And he mentored Winston Churchill, uh, almost as if he were a father. Uh, he, he, he pulled strings so that Churchill could go to Cuba and uh, various other 
destinations to develop his career as a journalist. And he was a great inspiration for Churchill. And Churchill had a very capacious memory. And, you know, nowadays, if we want to put, we want to keep something in our computer it's very easy to do so but it was winston churchill's brain that he was his computer and one of the epigrams of Burke cochran was something that churchill used to get out on several occasions and and slightly change it and use it but, but, but what Burke cochran said was that, that the earth is a generous mother if it is cultivated with injustice there is plenty for all so Churchill used this epigram when he was talking to the Arabs and the Palestinians when he was administering the Balfour Declaration and many other techniques that he learned from Burke Cochrane. But yes, there are techniques that uh, he speaks about in the scaffolding of rhetoric. Richard, before you get to those, is it true that Winston mm. Churchill had a, an almost a crisis on his feet uh, in these early days as a politician he was a learner of speeches. He, he actually had what Andrew Roberts called a phonographic memory and he could just memorise a speech and deliver it and that was his initial performance trick. Uh, but then he realised one day on the, on, the, on the floor of Parliament in 1904 that that wasn't going to work. It kind of, it, it didn't, it didn't, he, he had a blank and that changed everything. In fact, if you, if you go to Hansard, uh, on that for that particular speech um you know it sort of tells the story of, of how he was unable to continue and from he did have a, a capacious memory and uh, his capacity to recite poems and macaulay's lays of rome uh was was legion but because he 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 had stage fright he just simply forgot what he wanted to say it wasn't a very fascinating subject i think it was trade union legislation um, he decided from that moment on that he would write out every every word of the speeches that he gave. He didn't sort of hold the notes up in front of his nose because it, what his method was was to make it look as though it, it was extempore. So he would have the notes there as a safety net and occasionally as a kind of a, a, a flourish he would look at them. But he, it was certainly not the case. that, In, in fact, it's somewhat frowned upon in the House of Commons, even now, simply to read out a speech. The dramatic impact of doing so is, is greatly reduced if you're simply focused on what's written in front of you, because you should be looking at the audience and making eye contact, all of which Winston Churchill did. Uh, yeah. Richard, I, I also read that he used a technique that he called psalmist cards, and that was to take six important words in a sentence and only write those six words down in rows and therefore he could extemporize around the six important words of the sentence and and reconstruct it that way. I think way. that's right and I think it's a technique that a lot of those who give PowerPoint presentations will use. It's, uh, it's just kind of uh, reminders or roadmarks to guide them to f go from one topic to another topic because sometimes all you need is a word as a trigger to get you going. So you know, this is this is all very true, and the best jokes that he delivered that, that appeared to be extempore had all been well prepared, and that's an epigram in itself. That uh, you know the best off the cuff remarks have been very well rehearsed. So in the scaffolding 
of rhetoric, he gives six points as to what a good orator should learn. And he says that to some extent, oratory can be cultivated, but the the very best rhetoricians are a bit like um, composers, that you do have to have some kind of a gift that the gods deliver to some of us, but not to others. Having a perfect speaking voice isn't necessarily one of them because Winston Churchill did have a lisp and he did visit speech therapists to try to eliminate that. But I think in the end, it became quite an endearing quality that the way he spoke was not what you might call perfect because we live in an imperfect world and having somebody who speaks so smoothly and perfectly all the time may not have been the best thing. So the first point, he says, is that there should be correctness of diction. So Winston Churchill, um, being a wordsmith, worked extremely hard to find uh, the right word. And uh, he also said that the right word is very often the shortest word. So he would often use the word foe, for example, instead of uh, enemy. He, He also indicates in this essay that you have to conjure up an image. So if you're going to use the word dour about the Scotch, it conjures up the character of a people of a cold, grey land, severe, just, thrifty and religious. So, you know, each word should paint a picture. Yeah. And then you should um, create a rhythm in the speech. And his preferred rhythm was what you called blank verse, which you'll find in the Psalms, in the Bible, and in Shakespeare. So he's very keen on pursuing that uh, particular line. And then the argument should accumulate it, so there should be a build-up of, of an argument to the peroration at the end. Yeah. Uh, the fourth technique he speaks about is analogy, and then he, he quotes his father on this, Uh, saying, our rule in India is, as it were, a sheet of oil spread over and keeping free from storms, a vast and profound ocean of humanity. So he he makes reference to the speakers he admires, Lord Salisbury, his father, John Bright, and Lord Macaulay. And um, there should be some extravagance to a speech as well, um, to build up the emotions yeah. He even goes back to Pitt in his peroration, eulogising the freedom of Englishmen. The poorest man may in his cottage bid defiance to all the forces of the crown. It may be frail, its roof may shake, the wind may blow through it, the storms may enter, the rain may enter, but the King of England cannot enter. All his forces dare not cross the threshold of the ruined tenement. So you've got this kind of build-up of waves of uh, emotion and illusions there. Uh, and I think I think that's what we, especially in Australia, people like me who love speeches, it's something that we lack. Like It's really not a part of the political language, this sort of grandiose, ambitious and poetic attempt. Yes to capture a reality. I think you get a little bit more of it in English politics. But it's also something of the time, isn't it? Because I think this kind of grandiose, grandiloquence of language and the grandeur, it somehow has has to be suited to a particular time in history. And uh, it definitely suited the years 1939 to 1945 and beyond. 
it's 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 hard to say now that somebody could use that type of language without being laughed at and when Boris Johnson does attempt that kind of language he does get laughed at and he gets called a a poundland or a tin pot churchill yeah. so it's uh, it's an uphill battle well, take us back to that time. We are talking about the 1941 speech to Congress. Yeah. Um, it was a joint sitting, the Senate and the House of Reps, both there. Mm. Tell us about the speech, his preparation, his ambitions, the, the story of the speech. Well, the preparation of any speech, I, th- I think it's fair to say that uh, 10 minutes of speaking was generated by an hour of preparation. Uh, he, he had a whole bank of secretaries uh, one of them elizabeth layton has written a very worthwhile book about what it was like working for winston churchill uh, how he required there's anyone who's seen the darkest hour he was very keen on speeches being typed using double spacing he would probably go through about five drafts he would amend a speech in the taxi on the way to the house of commons he did not have a speechwriter, and that, that distinguishes him very much from today's politicians. So, yes, there, there would have been... He, he'd had two years to think about this speech, and he says in the opening paragraph that he was very thrilled to be in America. He, he, he had such a regard for, for America that he even makes a quip in the first paragraph that uh, had it been his father, Randolph Churchill, who was American and his mother had been British, he might have got to Congress on his own, meaning that if he'd been brought up in America, he he would undoubtedly have been a congressman, and who knows, maybe even president. Um, So that that certainly uh, amused the audience. And then he quickly gets into, I mean, it's going to be a spruik for democracy. It's It's a war speech, you know, we've got to fight this fight. Yes, he gets down to business. Although his speeches have a lot of flourishes with them, they're also very workmanlike. And, you know, you read the speech after Dunkirk and any of the speeches in the House of Commons, and most of it is taken up with simply stating, stating how the war is going uh, to, to the extent that he's able to without giving secrets to the enemy. Uh, he's, uh, you know, he's he's very good at uh, telling a story as if he were a journalist and, and, and giving the facts to people interspersed within those factual paragraphs. You will find some always find some Churchillian quips and he's trying to find common cause with both Republicans and Democrats. So he starts out his delivery by making reference to Abraham Lincoln and the Gettysburg Address. He probably feels that a lot of Americans think that this is a reactionary aristocrat and who doesn't share a lot of the American ideals. But he he, he lays that to rest very early on, on in the speech by making reference to Disraeli, having said that in in Victorian times, the world was for the few and for the very few. That's, that's a great line. Uh, so it? that's quite interesting for a conservative to, to, to speak like that, because, you know, that led on to his saying that he was always against privilege and monopoly. So he's, he's trying to find common cause with uh, Americans of all different political stripes. And he succeeds. He says that the invitation for him to speak at Congress was unanimous, which it might well not have been had he just been a, a, an ordinary American congressman. 
Tell us about the, the wooing. I mean, he, he really is laying out the case for the strongest possible contribution from the Americans. What's he got to do in this speech to get the best result for Great Britain and for Churchill? Well, he, it's not it's not just his speech. He goes there with all his generals and military men because they've got to start dealing with this war in a way that only people that speak the same language can. It's like that they're brothers in arms, they're comrades in arms. So he has to set the scene for that. I was going to say he pumps them up, doesn't he? He says, uh, you know, you're you're equipped for this, you know, but here in Washington in these memorable days, I have found an Olympian fortitude. Yes. Which far from being based upon complacency is only the mask of an inflexible purpose and the proof of a sure, well-grounded confidence in the final outcome. Yes. I mean, he, Churchill was a great fan of Disraeli. He remember who said of royalty that you had to lay it on with a trowel. And <laughs> so he's, Churchill certainly knew how to lay it on with a trowel so Churchill's technique in this war was never to hide the fact that things were tough and might even get tougher and that they were perhaps uh, too slow in getting prepared for the ordeal ahead because he he points out in contrast that the nations that loved peace the most obviously the western democracies were the least prepared for the war whereas the the Axis powers had spent the whole of the 30s preparing for this war. So he doesn't uh, recoil from stating that there was a lot of catch-up to be done. And is that because um, Churchill could hang his hat by 1941 or 1942, he could hang his hat on the fact that Hitler was a problem he'd foreseen from the mid-30s onwards, and, and and he was a lone voice for a lot of that time. So is it like, ha-ha, I told you so, and I'm going to tell you again now that I told you so? A little bit, yes. And in fact, I think we uh, I want to focus on the end of the speech for that particular reason. I don't. I wouldn't say that he, he kind of revels in saying that I was right and everyone else was wrong, yeah. but he doesn't kind of shrink from, from laying down the facts either. Uh, he also knows the importance of religion in America, and uh, halfway through the speech, he comes out with the following. Also, look at, the, look at the way he uses words here. He uses the sentence construction, sure I am. And to me, to put the word order in that way is so much more powerful than just simply to say, I am sure. So he says halfway through the speech, sure I am that on this day now we are masters of our fate. The, the task which has been set us is not above our strength, that its pangs and toils are not beyond our endurance. As long as we have faith in our cause and an unconquerable willpower, salvation will not be denied us. And then he goes on to say, in the words of the psalmist, he shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. Now, Winston Churchill was not particularly well known for his church attendance. He always <laughs> said that he was more of a, a buttress uh, supporting the church from outside than a, a regular a congregant. And he, I don't think in all the, all the five or six million words that he wrote and all the speeches that he gave, he actually refers to Jesus Christ at all. But he very often does make biblical allusions, especially from the Psalms. So that would appeal to an American audience. I feel sure of that. And I thought it was striking to a, a modern day audience re-watching the speech 
the the two there's two standing ovations in the speech. One is for Russia for what they yeah. have achieved in in repelling the onslaught uh, on the Eastern Front, and the other is for China. There's a standing ovation for China too. Yes, well, uh, for, he, for fighting off Japan. He had a very close rapport with uh, Shanghai Shek, and especially with Shanghai Shek's wife, Madam Shanghai Shek, who spoke excellent English. You know, Churchill was well known for being uh, anti-suffragette, which is not entirely true. He did have some sympathy for them, but I think when they tried to push him under a train, <laughs> that probably dampened his uh, yeah. his empathy for the cause. But certainly his experience of how women contributed to the war effort in both the world wars completely changed his attitude towards women. I think he respected Eleanor Roosevelt as well, though they didn't get on particularly well because you know, Churchill was so busy with, with the president, he didn't really have much time for her. But um, just talking about the Russians for a moment. Now, of course, Churchill was well known to be a fierce opponent of communism. And he, well, he tried to have communism strangled at birth in the early 1920s. And what he hated about the communists the most was their cruelty. So he really had no time for Lenin at all and would certainly not have chosen Stalin as a friend. But he nevertheless recognized the Russian people. So he, he doesn't refer to the Soviet Union so much during World War II as to the Russian people, as if he's appealing over the head of the communists to the to the ordinary Russian. Yeah. That that is the way that he garners support for the Russian cause. And his Winston Churchill's wife, Clementine Churchill, headed a lot of Red Cross missions to to Russia during the war. It's it's really quite remarkable this alliance with the the Soviet Union. And you know, a lot of people questioned Churchill about this. And his his reply was was that um, if uh, Hitler invaded hell, I would have a good word to say about the devil. So <laughs> it's the old thing of, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So he had to have the Russians as well as the Americans on board. And by 1941, this had occurred. So, so Richard, take us to the end of the speech. How does, how does he bring it home? Yes, he, he takes it home by looking back over the last couple of decades. And he says that if we kept together after the last war, if we'd taken common measures for our safety, the renewal of this curse of war need never have fallen upon us. Do we not owe it to ourselves, to our children, to tormented mankind, to make sure that these catastrophes do not engulf us for the third time? So he's looking back and saying that we were wrong because we didn't stamp out Nazism in its very early days when it would have been easy to do so because they mm. breached the terms of the Versailles Treaty. But remember, America did not join the League of Nations and they never particularly took an awful lot of engagement in, in what was going on in Europe. And uh, a lot of the governments in Europe itself were, were pro-appeasement and um, it's really horrible to think that 60 million people died during World War II and that Winston Churchill is saying that it, it could have all been avoided. So although he was called a warmonger and once war was upon him, nobody entered into that uh, war with greater enthusiasm. Mm. He was nevertheless an advocate for peace as he was with the Soviet Union. He delivered his Iron Curtain speech in 1946 warning about the dangers of uh, Soviet expansionism, and yet he still wanted to negotiate with the leadership after Stalin died. 
So he says at the end of the speech that five or six years ago, it would have been easy without shedding a drop of blood the United States and Great Britain to have insisted on the fulfilment of the... He's, he's really telling the Congress people that the, that they let the side down, and that's quite a brave thing to do. But Churchill, uh, you know, never wanted in courage. He didn't... He knew how to flatter people, but he also knew to, how to tell them how it is as well. Mm. And he makes reference to the Atlantic Charter. But he realises that it's... You know, you can't end on a downer like that. So it's one thing telling the American Congress that, you know, things didn't have to come to this pass, but he had to end on a very upbeat note. And I think that's the central message that he gives in the scaffolding of rhetoric, that the very last thing you say is, is the thing that has to leave a great impression. So I'll just quote the very last paragraph. I will say that he must indeed have a blind soul who cannot see that some great purpose and design is being worked out here below, of which we have the honour to be the faithful servants. It is not given to us to peer into the mysteries of the future. Still, I avow my hope and faith, sure and inviolate, that in the days to come, the British and American peoples will, for their own safety and for the good of all, walk together in majesty, in justice, and in peace. So I, I do see a little bit of Burt Cochrane in that last paragraph. I do think that the use of the word inviolate is something that is a very well-crafted word. Oh, I was going to say, all those connecting commas, those, it's a rolling phrase, and it's a beautiful phrase. It sort of fills you up as you're listening to it. Absolutely. You feel the tears coming. You do. And, you know, when Andrew Roberts wrote his biography of Churchill, the, the subtitle that he gave, Walking with Destiny, you know, has such echoes in, in that last sense that uh, we are, in the Shakespearean sense, all actors on a world stage are taking part in some plan that has been set for us by providence that we don't know exactly what it is, but we should accept the fact that this is what it is we have to do. And I suppose he would sum it up by the use of the word duty. That the point of life is to, for human beings to find out what their duty is in life and then to pursue that course. I find it to be extremely inspiring and i think these it, we're now looking at what's going on in ukraine i i do think that winston churchill would be a lot more impressed with the unity that's being shown by the west than was the case in the 1930s he would probably again be critical of the fact that the west didn't act with sufficient severity when russia invaded crimea in 2014 with how Russia behaved over Chechnya, for example, and in Syria, and especially with some of these um, international assassinations that have been taking place around the world, particularly the ones in, in Winchester with the use of biological weapons. Mm. I think Winston Churchill feels that we were, you know, the sanctions should have been put into operation with greater force than what they were. But I do believe that the world has taken to its heart the, the very great lessons that Churchill has given us in his speeches and in his writings about if you want to have peace, then you have to prepare for war. And that is his lasting legacy, which I think the world is now taking on board. Um, for those who are interested in, in rhetoric 
generally there's a you know there are plenty of articles that give you all the the, the latin words for the techniques that he uses but i suspect we, we don't have time to to investigate those now did you want to refer us to one or an article that's particularly interesting on this well i think all you have to do really is to google um rhetorical techniques of winston churchill and you'll find a whole plethora of articles richard tell us what were the what were the greatest hits though which ones did he go to the most well, I suppose repetition is, is very important um, when he speaks about the love of peace, the toil for peace, the strife for peace and the pursuit of peace. Yeah. And then the anti-metabole is another one, the repetition of words in successive clauses, but with their order transposed. So after one of the victories in 1942, he made a speech at Mansion House in which he said, this is not the end is not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps, a very important word in the English discourse, the end of the beginning. So, you know, he loved, he absolutely loved playing with words. And as you said before about that speech in Harrow, people always refer to it as the never give up speech. It wasn't never give up, it was never give in. So that was the no, lesson that you I'm should... <laughs> I'll lose my spot in my own website. <laughs> yeah. Um, the use of a single term or image to represent a wider concept, metonymy. We welcome Russia to her rightful place. We welcome her flag upon the sea. Yeah. And then metaphor, comparing two things from Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Yeah. I, I would refer our listeners to a 10-minute um, video where Boris Johnson, before he became prime minister, is interviewed about Churchillian techniques. And uh, it's good, Boris it? Johnson, who, who was a Latin scholar, he, he makes reference to about six of these techniques and he, he gives an illustration. So, And Richard, one, and one he mentions in that, video is that Churchill had a preference for what he called Anglo-Saxon words, yes. the ones that weren't derived from romantic languages, that he liked the, we will fight them on the beaches. All those words aren't the romantic Latin-rooted words. They're the, they're the Anglo-Saxon words well, that, I think, that Boris Johnson yes, says that's quite right. he, sort of sit in the guts of the English person <laughs> right back to our the, the origin of things. And I'm not sure whether it was Ed Morrow or John Kennedy who first said this, but it's not for nothing that it was said of Winston Churchill that he, he mobilised the English language and sent it into battle. Yeah. And he believed that the best words were the short words because they were the punchiest words. Yeah. It's not to say that he didn't sometimes use longer words. I mean, for instance, the, the word inviolate. You yeah. know. So there were occasions when he did use longer words and words that we don't often use. So you know, it's just very interesting the way... He uses words that nobody else uses. So, for example, the word pray, he used when we would say please. So he would write to a civil servant and say, pray, you know, why haven't you brought the naval estimates to me? So, yeah. you know, that's what I find so fascinating about Churchill is that he was such a, a Victorian in so many ways. And yet a very modern man in other ways who was, you know, happy to pioneer air travel was very interested in science and he was what you call a polymath i would say with all with all the hobbies that he had as well the bricklaying and the painting and whatever else he you know there may be a lot that you can disagree with about him and andrew roberts doesn't pull his punches about that but 
I believe that that studying Winston Churchill uh, is something that would be a benefit to young people. And I think the people who deface his statues should certainly be given the punishment of reading Andrew Roberts' biography and perhaps writing a commentary upon it. And I think that would give them pause, pause for thought. Well, you, well, you proofread Andrew Roberts's biography, yes. Richard, um, and just just finish on this the the kind of the latter day accusations towards Churchill that that he was. You mentioned the sexism, but I guess the racism is the one that's yes, more loaded. It's true. Um, what are your thoughts on? I think it would be ridiculous and pathetic to deny that Churchill said racist things and perhaps acted in in racist ways during his career. But I think a lot of what Churchill said was what you might call banter or badinage, uh, stuff that he didn't really mean. But I have in front of me now a letter that he wrote to William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1942, when a rally was held at the Albert Hall to protest about the uh, Nazi persecution of the Jews. And he ends this letter to the Archbishop as follows. Free men and women denounce these vile crimes, and when the world struggle ends with the enthronement of human rights, racial persecution will be ended. I see this as being a person that had a, a very wide worldview, somebody who supported with Franklin Roosevelt the provisions of the Atlantic Charter, the provisions of the United Nations, and also the Declaration, the Universal Declaration on Human Rights. I believe that that's, that, that is the real Winston Churchill, um, and that you shouldn't take too much notice of some of the things that he said in, in his youth. Richard, in the Iron Curtain speech, he's, he's sort of obsessed with the I guess, the the bond between the English-speaking races. He has this sort of English-speaking thing, doesn't it? Yes. That, that is extrapolated into, into, into a white supremacy, I, I guess. I suppose you could say that because, uh, you know, he regarded America, Canada, South Africa, Australia and New Zealand as being the core of the empire and then the Commonwealth. But he did have a high, very high regard for India. Remember, he spent a lot of time in India uh, before he became a politician. And one of his fears for independence in India was the uh, outbreak of religious wars between the, Mus- the Muslims and the Hindus in the creation of Pakistan. And he, he was quite right to have those fears about this internecine warfare. Uh, He was also a fierce opponent of the Indian caste system. So even, you know, even if you're going to say he made a huge mistake in opposing Indian independence, there is, it's more nuanced than what one might say. And, you know, just to say also that Winston Churchill was a creature of his times is only half the story, because take, for example, his attitude towards homosexuality. A lot of the people that he was surrounded with, Eddie Marsh, his secretary, Philip Sassoon, who was the Minister of Air, uh, were homosexual, and Churchill had a pretty liberal attitude towards them. And in fact, he, he would have brought in legislation respecting homosexual rights, gay rights, but he, he, he was a savvy enough politician to know that the, the public wasn't ready for it. So... He was this. He was a liberal, remember, for twenty years, 
And this infused his attitude to the obligations of those in power towards those who fall through the net in society. So he is a man of great contrast and contradictions. One thing you shouldn't do about Winston Churchill, which is so easy to do in a Facebook posting or a comment on a newspaper article, is just simply to pigeonhole him. And if you're going to refer us to one book or one film, where would you send us, Richard? Well, single volume biography, there's been over a thousand written about Winston Churchill. Single volume one would be Andrew Roberts. But if you want to go into a greater depth, and all historians are indebted to the official works of Sir Martin Gilbert. So there's the six volume official biography of Churchill, the first two of which were written by Winston Churchill's son, Randolph, and the last four by Sir Martin Gilbert, with also accompanying companion volumes full of notes and cross-references, which a serious historian should definitely tackle. As far as a film is concerned, I actually preferred the film with Albert Finney, The Gathering Storm, as a performance of Winston Churchill to The Darkest Hour. And I'm afraid I didn't like that scene, uh, the imaginary scene of Churchill in the tube, because I don't really think when it comes to Winston Churchill, you need to use poetic license because there's enough about him which can be entertaining without having to make things up. And, well, we're about to play the speech. I'm going to play it in its entirety. I always think it's amazing to sit down and listen and sort of pretend how you might have mm. felt if you were a congressman in 1941. So we'll play the entire speech and enjoy those big, long pauses and uh, the rhetorical flourishes and devices. Yes. Although there's a complete audio recording of the speech, um, I could only find about a six-minute video. So those that have heard the speech afterwards, if they want to see him in action you can find us a, a six minute video so is this um is this where we sign off now then uh, you and me it is okay thank you it's been a thank very you great so much, pleasure Richard. i've really really enjoyed it and uh, if it if it causes anyone else to want to join the winston churchill facebook group they'd be made very welcome indeed well i've really enjoyed being part of it richard so thank you okay good to speak to you thank you I've been hosting another podcast recently. It's a bit of an oral history project, and it's telling COVID stories called COVID Roulette. Look up COVID Roulette in your podcast provider. And I've just been going around asking people their stories from the last couple of years. For some people, it's been about their illness, their COVID medical experience. And for others, it's been an economic story or a story of loss, of dealing with death, Really, everything's been on the table. Parenting, love. It's just ordinary people telling their life stories. So look it up. COVID Roulette. It's been co-produced with my friend Leanne Coglin. But from the pandemic-related travails of the present, let's go back to the war-related traumas of the past. This was the end of 1941, a truly difficult time. The Allies some distance from getting on top in Europe. Japan just in the war in the Pacific, and Winston Churchill sitting before a joint sitting of the US Congress. Members of the Senate and of the 
House of Representatives of the United States, I feel greatly honored that you should have invited me to enter the United States Senate chamber and address the representatives of both branches of Congress. The fact that my American forebears have for so many generations played their part in the life of the United States, and that here I am, an Englishman, welcomed in your midst, makes this experience one of the most moving and thrilling in my life, which is already long and has not been entirely uneventful. I, I, wish, I wish indeed that my mother, whose uh, memory I cherish across the veil of years, could have been here to see. By the way, uh, I cannot help reflecting that if my father had been uh, American and my mother British, <coughs> instead of the other way around, uh, I might have got here on my own. <laughs> like a fish out of water in a legislative assembly where English is spoken. I'm a child of the House of Commons. I was brought up in my father's house to believe in democracy. Trust the people. That was his message. I used to see him cheered at meetings and in the streets by crowds of working men way back in those aristocratic Victorian days when, as the Israelis said, the world was for the few and for the very few. Therefore, I have been in full harmony all my life with the tides which have flowed on both sides of the Atlantic against privilege and monopoly, and I have steered confidently towards the Gettysburg ideal of government of the people, by the people, for the people. I owe my advancement entirely to the House of Commons, whose servant I am. In my country, as in yours, public men are proud to be the servants of the state and would be ashamed to be its masters. On any day, if they thought, it, if they thought the people wanted it, the House of Commons could, by a simple vote, remove me from my office. But I'm not worrying about it at all. Uh, as a matter of fact, I am sure they will approve very highly of my journey here, for which I obtained the King's permission, in order to meet the President of the United States. <laughs> and to arrange with him for all that mapping out of our military plans and for all those intimate meetings of the high officers of the armed services in both countries 
which are indispensable to the successful prosecution of the war. I should like to say, first of all, how much I have been impressed and encouraged by the breadth of view and sense of proportion which I have found in all quarters over here to which I've had access. Anyone who did not understand the size and solidarity of the foundations of the United States might easily have expected to find an excited, disturbed, self-centered atmosphere with all minds fixed upon the novel, startling, and painful episodes of sudden war as they hit America. After all, the United States have been attacked and set upon by three most powerfully armed dictator states, the greatest military power in Europe, the greatest military power in Asia, Japan, Germany, and Italy have all declared and are making war upon you. And a quarrel is open which can only end in their overthrow or yours. But here in Washington, in these memorable days, I have found an Olympian fortitude which far from being based upon complacency is only the mask of an inflexible purpose and the proof of a sure, well-grounded confidence in the final outcome. <laughs> and, the, and there are factions who have launched their peoples on the path of war and conquest know that they will be called to terrible account if they cannot beat down by force of arms the peoples they have assailed. They will stop at nothing. They have a vast accumulation of war weapons of all kinds. They have highly trained and disciplined armies, navies, and air services. They have plans and designs which have long been contrived and matured. They will stop at nothing that violence or treachery can suggest. It is quite true that on our side, our resources in manpower and materials are far greater than theirs. But only a portion of your resources are as yet mobilized and developed. And we both of us have much to learn in the cruel art of war. We have therefore without doubt a time of tribulation before us. In this same time some ground will be lost, which it will be hard and costly to regain. Many disappointments and unpleasant surprises await us. Many of them will afflict us before the full marshalling of our latent and total power can be accomplished. For the best part of 20 years, the youth of Britain and America have been taught that war was evil, which is true, and that it would never come again, which has been proved false. For the best part of 20 years, the youth of Germany, of Japan and Italy have been taught that aggressive war is the noblest duty of the citizen, 
and that it should begun, be begun as soon as the necessary weapons and organization have been made. We have performed the duties and tasks of peace. They have plotted and planned uh, for war. This uh, naturally has placed us in Britain and now places you in the United States at a disadvantage which only time, courage and untiring exertion can correct. We have indeed to be thankful that so much time has been granted to us. If Germany had tried to invade the British Isles after the French collapse in June 1940, and if Japan had declared war on the British Empire and the United States at about the same date, no one can say what disasters and agonies might not have been a lot. But now to total war efficiency has made very great progress. The broad flow of munitions in Great Britain has already begun. Immense strides have been made in the conversion of American industry to military purposes. And now that the United States is at war, it is possible for orders to be given every day, which in a year or 18 months, hence, will produce results in war power beyond anything that has been seen or foreseen of the Russian menace which hangs over Japan, it becomes still more difficult to reconcile Japanese action with prudence or even with sanity. What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget? and members of the House of Representatives, I will turn <coughs> for one moment more from the turmoil and convulsions of the present to the broader spaces of the future. Here we are, together, facing a group of mighty foes who seek our ruin. Here we are, together, defending all that to free men is dear. Twice in a single generation, the catastrophe of world war has fallen upon us. Twice in our lifetime has the long arm of fate reached out across the oceans to bring the United States into the forefront of the battle. If we had kept together after the last war, if we had taken common measures for our safety, this renewal of the curse need never have fallen upon us. Do we not owe it to ourselves, to our children, 
to torment mankind to make sure that these catastrophes do not engulf us for the third time. It has been proved that pestilences may break out in the old world which carry their destructive ravages into the new world from which once they are afoot the new world can not escape. Duty and prudence alike command. First, that the germ centers of hatred and revenge should be constantly and vigilantly served and treated in good time and that all and that an adequate organization should be set up to make sure that the pestilence can be controlled at its earliest beginnings before it spreads and rages throughout the entire earth. Five or six years ago, it would have been easy, without shedding a drop of blood, for the United States and Great Britain to have insisted on the fulfillment of the disarmament clauses of the treaties which Germany signed after the Great War. And that also would have been the opportunity for assuring to the Germans those materials, those raw materials, which we declared in the Atlantic Charter should not be denied to any nation, victor or vanquished. The chance has passed. It is gone. Prodigious hammer strokes have been needed to bring us together today. If you will allow me to use other language, I will say that he must indeed have a, a blind soul who cannot see that some great purpose and design is being worked out here below, of which we have the honor to be the faithful servants. It is not given to us to peer into the mysteries of the future. Still I avow my hope and faith, sure and inviolate, that in the days to come, the British and American peoples will for their own safety and for the good of all, walk together in majesty, in justice, and in peace. Well planned, Sir Winston. His address to the Joint Session of Congress, 26th of December 1941. Thank you so much, Richard Cohen, for coming on the podcast. Look up his Facebook group. It's excellent. He puts things out every day if you're a bit of a Churchillian fan. A big thank you to David Bridie, who provides our theme music. He also did the theme music for COVID Roulette. Thank you to all the listeners who support this show. We're an independent, ad-free enterprise. Are we even an enterprise? We're almost a hobby. Speakola.com forward slash donate or patreon.com forward slash speak Ola. Please help me out. It'd be nice to get our tribe up above 60, I think we have at the moment. And it makes a real difference to have a bit of income coming in for the various expenses and the incredible amount of time I put into this. Thank you to everyone who's shared a speech or put a rating or review on iTunes. I'll be back with another edition soon. If you've got a guest suggestion, I'd love one of those. Tony at speakola.com. 
That's it for the episode. Thanks for listening. This isn't the beginning of the end. It's not even the middle of the end. It's the end of the end. <laughs>